Welcome to Behind the White Scarves. Hello, dear listeners, and welcome back to the first of what I think are going to be several episodes interviewing the entirety of the Shaw clan, including potentially Indy. I don't know if they're going to be in the background or not. You'll probably hear some shifting, perhaps. <laughs> if... You did ask to have him on at some point. <laughs> yeah, he exactly. Here. Okay, He's here to lend moral support. <laughs> as, as is his right and privilege. This was always going to be kind of a huge get, a huge deal, in part because we've had several chances now to interview both of you, Alex and Sharon, for various things ever since 2019, uh, when you asked us to do uh, some post-release episodes for Steamheart. But this is the first time we've had the youngest member of the Shaw clan, Mm. Willow Shaw, and... It's not that Willow hasn't been around, because without knowing it, when you first released, released, when you first gave me all of the old audio dramas back in 2019, before all of this began, I remember hearing the voice of a young person singing a song mm-hmm. during one of the chapters of Tiger's Eye. <laughs> and I did not, like I thought at the time, that that might have been just something you grabbed from the internet somewhere that had, like, verisimilitude. I did not know that that was Willow relating, as you revealed to me later, something that they did for, I think it was school? Yeah, it was a school play. play. Mm -hmm. I don't remember the specifics of it, but we were doing a wildlife play. It was about the Amazon, wasn't it? Yeah. Mm. And Wildcat was (laughs) the entrance of, I think, a jaguar? Mm. Mmm. I did not put that in the Panther Soul audio drama, but I might put it in the Planet of the Cats one. Mm. It all comes full circle. Mm. In the meantime, Willow, you continued to uh, provide uh, small speaking roles here and there for various characters throughout several books, but it was going to be uh, a big one for you in particular, now playing one of the major protagonists of Panther Soul. And we were kind of prepared for this from the very beginning due to all of the artwork that Alex was throwing at us from, I think it was Jim that was doing those uh, early sketches that we commented on, I think on our second recorded episode even. It was actually Dios Reverido that did those first two promotional works of Colo, Nash, and Leah. And I will make sure to link to the speed draws that Alex uploaded to YouTube so that you can see what I'm talking about. Because this was a long time ago now. Before we focus on Will, however, let's start off big. A sequel to Tiger's Eye was always likely to happen due to the popularity of Rama's first outing. But it also seemed like the one that went through some of the most changes... So I'm curious, Alex, if you can talk us through a little bit of that, including what it was like on original Inception, 
how it changed after the group killer that was Steamheart, the amount of work that was required in order to put that out, mm. and then the 2020 writing block, which, you know, was a showstopper for a lot of things. I've written down, um, because you were obligingly sent me the uh, questions on here, because a lot of them are quite in-depth and multi-part, so thank you for that. It was going to be a big treasure hunt, but the the focus at the time was, I want to get Hrau back together with Carol, and Carol is in a place that is going to be very difficult for Carol to leave. Way back when I wrote Tiger's Eye, I deliberately wrote the loss of Carol as mysterious with enough way of getting around it that would allow for Carol to come back in adult form. So for the longest time, Prau and Miguel were going to be in this. And it was going to be, uh, I want to say either it's a mad, 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 mad world or uh, the treasure of the Sierra Madrid race to try to find a specific treasure and i think i can't remember the exact macguffin of the treasure it was going to be but the person who had carol was going to be a a sort of a dark sorceress who at the time i think i was going to give to sharon because at the time sharon didn't have a particularly prominent female role having only really voiced sashel before because if you remember we did secret rooms and she starred as abby and then we brought in Maureen to star as Harau. And since the plan was always do an Avengers-style series of stories, it was going to be an, a spotlight on a different actress here. So coming back to Rama, it was like, right, so let's kind of see if we can pull together a Thundercats team. And mm-hmm. Beatrix and some of her pirate crew were also going to be there trying to get hold of this treasure but it was going to be a face turn for Beatrix by the end. It was going to be that Beatrix was a skullduggerous pirate, but eventually did the right thing. And it was kind of a getting her over on side. And Miguel was going to spend a long time in the captivity of this cat sorceress and try to talk her around, but find that this was someone who was absolutely unrepentantly evil. Meantime, Carol, who would be very wary of Harau would spend time with someone who eventually turns out to be her mother. So to a degree, we didn't get that story. Mm. But the decision had to be made after 2015 because Maureen's voice, as you'll well know, Greg, Mm -hmm. uh, really suffered. And I've always kind of blamed myself for putting her through an incredibly rigorous and passionate performance that she just she spoke so much during that summer in in a the way in a manner of a professional voice actor without having really performed before mm. so i feel like i made maureen overdo it and she's wanted to come back as rao in a larger capacity since then and i've always kind of steered her into smaller roles so an appearance in steamheart where she's like a, a, a center part of the group but it's less intensive on her speaking and then her appearance in Uncivil Outlaw. So it felt like if we're going back to Rama, we have to keep Harau less super intensive and create another character who can kind of lead this thing to eventually be the Lion-O. And it was going to be a panther who I then just developed over time into this, he just got more and more layers as I was working out how he would come to be in this place. And I was just so overjoyed with the idea of being able to play a cat myself because going through as Miguel he's always very much on the outside of the cats 
but I was like, well, to give Maureen a bit of a rest, I'm going to shoulder some of the uh, the burden of the talking. Eventually, it became a case of, you know what, these characters that I've got set up here are all really, really strong. And if we have Rao there, the focus is going to be on where can Rao go in her character that's mm. new beyond her uh, changes in Steamheart and then changes in Uncivil Outlaw that doesn't subtract from the stories of these new characters. It became almost too big of a story with almost too many great characters. And so I decided, okay, if we're going to do this and we are going to go back to my original remit of sort of bringing together a sort of Avengers, we have to spotlight the new characters and bring Rao back to the background, keep her there, but make it, in this case, rather than Harau changing, make it really, really focus on Star's story. As you said in the first interview, they are both antagonist and protagonist. Mm. Ergo, it became all of this development happens with absolutely nothing to do with attachment to Harau. And then we enrich that by bringing them back together at the very end and leaving a huge amount of potential for them to grow in the future. But that also means that I can now go on to a story where Harau and all the rest of them all play a part in a larger tapestry, which has been unfolding since the very beginning of Tiger's Eye. Sorry for the very waffly thing there, but it's, this was not an overnight thing. This one took years to develop. You do say, of course, that Harau, obviously she isn't present for 95% of the story, mm. but it's kind of fascinating the way both her and Miguel's influence on the world is kind of baked yeah. into every little bit of it. So she's always kind of there in spirit and her coming in right at the end during the most powerful of all the denouements, mm. just sort of like it brings everything full circle in a kind of perfect way. And we'll mm. talk some more about that later. The inclusion of rapport it is, in the metaphorical sense, a concrete impression on the entire world of Rama, or at least the parts of it that we are presently invested in, that folds out from what happened in Tiger's Eye. Was that something that came out of the decision that we're going to put Krau on the back burner, but we want to make this feel like this is something where Krau is baked into mm -hmm this setting was that something that came out after the change or did yes you and no. know? Yeah. to a degree it was and this also accomplishes the incorporation of what harau and miguel have done and everyone who was connected to them mattered in this world but that was a happy bonus to a knotty problem of how the hell are all these different cats going to communicate with each other if we've established throughout tiger's eye they don't all speak the same language uh, and it just, it made perfect sense since it's following on from a story about communication, that if that was going to have a lasting effect, then communication would become more universal as a result. Hence, the language which didn't have a name until I thought of a good pun. <laughs> um, oh, can I answer the third part of that previous question as well? The 2020 writing block and what finally helped me to give Panthersoul its final form, because I had written some of Panthersoul, but I couldn't write during 2020. I was just stuck. Mm. Do you remember the uh, Black Lives Matter um, protest marches? Oh, yes. And right. remember how the cops were like, we understand your right to protest and we are going to stay out of this and just sort of let you do that. Uh, and they didn't interfere and actually 
double down on seeming like Nazi black shirts. No, actually, the opposite happened, and they did, in fact, make themselves seem like a bunch of fucking stormtroopers. The reason that I had real difficulty writing both Stone Spring Maidens and this was the presence of that super oppressive totalitarian uh, system underlying both of these civilizations. There's the encroachment on Rama from uh, Europe, and then there's the already here and just bubbling under the surface in Washington, which was obviously seriously like harry was blissfully ignorant of it for many many years of her life and then it came slamming into her with green hollow so i couldn't ignore it when doing stone spring maidens and in fact it had to inform upon her worldview and it had to make her feel more jaded and afraid and very angry and frustrated mm. and so, for panther soul i was like but how do we do that without seeming like we're crassly hand-waving it? The answer was right there, which is that the origins of the American police system go back to hunting parties that were set up to go out and find escaped slaves. So as I was developing Colo, I thought, right, so if we just really hone in on the, sort of the, the early South and their treating native <laughs> people like they're not actually people. And in fact, in their case, bringing native people across from a different land that they could treat like not actually people. Just just really kind of crystallize, not specifically that this is something that's connected to a, a race or a, uh, a time period, but that it is a facet of the human condition that left unchecked this level of authoritarianism, this level of if we can get away with this, we will, because it will advance our power structure, will occur, and for that to be the actual thing that our heroes are fighting against, the ability to measure up at the, the greatest demons of uh, our existence and set them against the better angels of the virtues I am championing throughout all the new century books, the communication, the working together, the trying to see commonality within one another, rather than only seeing the differences. The illustration that my own anxiety links with Thomas Arlington's of, if we don't do this, we're extinct. Again, to link this topic of conversation to what Thomas Arlington has himself voiced, it really does seem like the virus spreading between the different worlds, but more accurately, it is in isolated instances springing up in all these different worlds, is this totalitarianism. It is these self-destructive trains of political thought that mean that these civilizations are caving in on themselves. That is the real thing spreading between all these different dimensions more so than the Wendigo. I've got to be careful here and not spell out far too much about far too many of the stories, because that's your job. <laughs> <laughs> We've taken that job from you, Alex. Yes, <laughs> and you're really good at it, so I'll, I'll shush. <laughs> I'll speak when I'm spoken to. Well, how convenient then that this entire interview is us speaking to you. <laughs> but it is not just us speaking to you, so we shall turn the camera's focus over and uh, speak to our first time guests on here, who I am very nervous to speak to because they are just so freaking cool. And for context, <laughs> this interview is being recorded on the same week that the heck boy rise of the blood queen just grow some fucking balls uh film 
released Big Red Balls. and Whoa. the amount that we wretched was only matched and then ground into the fucking dirt pardon my language uh pardon... right. i give you permission to swear for a year yeah <laughs> <laughs> pardon my french uh is probably the better term in this mm-hmm. context how hard will went down on that like the phrase i will not stop until this horse is gaseous has been burned into my soul holy <laughs> That's beating a dead horse until it becomes Vaporeon. Yes, okay, there we go. I Clearly I needed to have it better etched into my soul because I misquoted it. Anyway, Will, I'm going to go down the list so that we can get to our questions here. I think this first bit here, I will actually pass it over to Greg because he had mapped out the first question. Obviously, because Leah was envisioned originally by Alex for Willow, if there needs to be a little bit of crosstalk here, that's fine. Mm-hmm. The first thing that I wanted to ask, I already know a little bit of the answer because Alex, you talked a little bit about this, but why specifically a Kiwi accent for Leah? And Will, did it make acting more difficult in places where you had to be very emotional? It came a little more naturally during emotional scenes, I think. There was mm. one a scene that I think I slipped on a bit, but apart from that, Dad saved all the key emotional bits for later on where I had gotten a hold of how to speak, mm-hmm. how to use my eggs and my its. And tin eggs. <laughs> That's tin the eggs. Uh, touchstone for finding the accent. I was going to ask, was there a phrase that you would just repeat in order to get yourself back into the headspace? <laughs> yes. We watched a lot of um, Hunt for the Wilder People scenes Mm. for when I had to focus in on Leah's scene. And uh, Sharon and I have been studying Taika Waititi. Remember when we did that four Taika Waititi films? Yeah. yeah. uh, Mm. Episode. So we'd watch them back to back with Will. And I'd said, like, pay attention to the candor of how these kids speak, because there always seems to be young kids in Watiti's films so you've got like a a boy man and a a boy boy yeah and they speak in a similar way but it was there's something about the kiwi sense of humor how understated it is that they're, they're even more good at sarcasm without even really seeming all that spiteful than british people mm-hmm. following on from that the kiwi accent also because we don't necessarily hear it from everybody else, it gives Bastarian a little bit more of the cosmopolitan feel that it's supposed to have, being the equivalent of the melting pot that it's first introduced, where people are speaking in all different languages, including Rapa, and we don't even necessarily know where everybody comes from. Tigers, panthers, cheetahs are talking to one another using rapport. As I strut, I can see this new language being employed all throughout the city. Elaborate gestures are pantomimed between the species, crossing the cultural and dialectic barriers. Occasionally, passers-by will chip in with a translation if it isn't going well, and oftentimes the speakers will seclude themselves to prevent interference, or elsewise speak more performatively, inviting assistance in making their point. My own mastery of this mutating communication skill is still growing, so when I see the gesturing, I hear garbled half-sense in my head. Shop is where I buy bottom paw wraps. Where is Esteban? He ate the library? My mother is not far from 
the moon? I desire a beard. The water is dirty. You peed in it. The monkey has constructed a house upon the branch. I leave them to their gibberish. You're right. It, it contributes to the humorous aspect of it because there is something in the way of Leah's attitude specifically that always made me smile whenever she said, well, not, not whenever she said anything, obviously when she's dead serious about things, but most of the time when she's playful and flippant, the Kiwi accent probably just naturally adds some aspect to that. But I think as we've established by now, the soul behind all of that is Willow's vocal work. And it's clear that, well, even when, when you're just being yourself, the unis of it manages to come through, especially, as you said a moment ago, when you're being passionate. I had planned to get more books written and then started on Panther Soul. And then I went to see Thor Love and Thunder and I came out going, I've got to start on Panther Soul because uh, that was rubbish. So, <laughs> <laughs> uh, and I honestly, I was so upset because if you remember, we'd been studying up in Taika Waititi and we'd just praised him to the high heavens for his ability to somehow manage both comedy and drama in side-splitting and heart-wrenching ways. And then he went ahead and did something he clearly didn't care that much about and, and almost seemed like he was forced into. And that absolutely came across on screen that he was just like, yeah, I'm just going to put this out there. Do you like that? There's a, an affinity for understatement that comes with the Kiwi accent, where it's almost like they live in their own fantasy world, which, which kind of compounds the fact that uh, Lord of the Rings was shot in this primordial paradise of New Zealand. Oh, now I want to see a cut of Lord of the Rings where everyone's speaking with a Kiwi accent. <laughs> There's a, a, a amiability to it. So much Kiwi humour makes the person who is utilising it sound like they're either being purposefully naive or slyly naive, but in a way that is endearing. It's very rare that Kiwi humour will make the person sound obnoxious. It's uh, the guy in... Um, the new vampire in What We Do in the Shadows, vomiting blood in an alley, going, it's rubbish being a vampire, can't even eat chips, it's my favourite food. And it's like, he's talking about something which an American would be crying and shouting about, but he's saying it in a kind of a, ugh, way, <laughs> which just, I felt like if you got Leah speaking like that, about things that are really huge and affect Rama on a grand scale, but then when she stops speaking like that, you know it's real, then that would actually manage that comedy and drama in a way that felt authentic to both. In addition to that, when Leah says something that is this observation on how some of her friends are acting, it cuts because you know that there is no exaggeration to mm. it. It is direct truth. When Colo does a bit of a show to basically humiliate a couple of people when there was never a doubt in his mind that he would be able to win the fight and he drew it out or took it in a direction that would make it into as much of a show as possible, mm. then that takes the wind of our, out of ourselves. You said you were the greatest fighter who ever lived. And? And I didn't realise it was true. She replies incredulously. If you wanted to. You could have just beaten them to a pulp and stolen their lizards. She leans past me and regards their crumpled forms in the dirt. Looks like you wanted to. Hey, I got us exactly what we- Have you noticed your voice changes? She interrupts me, glaring. 
depending on what you're doing and who you want to impress. Leah and her voice is just encapsulating this feeling of it's not naivety, but that's uh, what you were describing earlier with the Taika Waititi films, where everyone's either a boy man or a boy boy. It feels as if in this instance, it, the youthfulness actually gives rise to a more mature clarity on how things are. Part of that is that it feels as if Kolo is maybe a bit too baked into the identity or even indeed identities that he has carved for himself across mm. his many lives. And Leah is adaptable and able to sort of see things as they are and say how things are. The th one of the things I'm most curious about, Leah was one of the characters that was first introduced to us, but where did the choice come to give Willow as big a role as you did. Willow, did you want to work on something, a character, did you want to do a character that was going to be as big as they ended up being? Did you want to narrate as you'd heard Alex and Sharon and other people did? Or was this one of the changes that happened along the way? The origin of me giving Will a much larger role came when we were deciding what to do with Back in Time Plus Space, and we carved out a sizable role that was originally going to go to Loretta for various reasons, and uh, I decided would feel much more authentic coming from Willow, if Willow was comfortable with that. Willow seemed really, really cool with the idea but I knew it was going to be very intensive and there'd be a lot of talking so while I was uh, hashing out Panther Soul and it was still at that point more of a treasure hunt involving loads of different parties which is still there it's mm. just much more involved and personal I said right if I could create a cat character for you and thus I tailored Leah to Willow the more we talked about it the more into the groove Will got and the, the character kind of sprang out of that I think it also came just down to how mortifying it is as a parent to disappoint your child. I knew that we could get to the core of Kolo by being the opposite of Rao, that rather than being a parent grieving for one child and slowly adopting another child, to be a bad parent and to want to be better, but to just get to those crystallized moments where it's, it's multiple steps it starts off where Leah, you know, kind of teases him, but doesn't think particularly badly of him. Then after the showboating, she really does seem to disparage him in a way that it takes a while to, for him to win her back around from. But then after the horrific aftermath of the big fight at the Oasis, there comes kind of a point where she's not entirely sure about him. And then when she finds out about Dashington, I was like, at this stage... A little cub who can in no way present any danger to Kolo is going to utterly destroy him mm. and bust him down to nothing so that he can build himself back up again. And that was the power that I wanted to confer on this cub because even just an adult or like an uncle or a, a caregiver or, or a teacher, to be genuinely disappointed in by a kid who trusted you and to feel that authenticity of, of why they're disappointed is an almost indescribable feeling of, I wish I could turn back time and make this thing not happen, but mm. I can't 
so I've got to somehow make amends. The greatest secret that they never tell you about parent-child dynamics is that while children always say that the worst thing that a parent can say to them is, I'm not angry, I'm just disappointed, mm. that goes both ways. Yeah. <laughs> because you may expect anger and you may be able to think of ways that you can sort of work through it, but when they are disappointed in you, that cuts because trust is hard to win back in any relationship but for parental and parental akin relationships that is especially important that you cultivate and nurture trust so when you damage it it feels that much more dire and it's one thing to be told i didn't ask to be born i hate you by a uh, a teenager who's kind of conforming to the stereotype of of being addled by various hormones and railing against their restrictions and oh no boundaries what the f- am i going to do and that that feels like a natural part of growing up and and mm. we've managed to just about get by being as communicative as possible with will who has been very accommodating and not screamed i didn't ask to be born but the fact that you find out about Colo's always being this kind of person and seeming to just advance his own station with the lions and for that to evoke disgust from Willow at that point just happens to be at the point when we find out that Leah was never lying. That it sounds like Leah's crazy a lot of the way through the book, or just this terrible liar, or delusional, or just living in a dream world and just being sarcastic and acting like a princess to uh, to get her own way and being bossy. And effectively, her very name evokes Lara Balakwa. And so you assume she's just very good with uh, sort of staging fantasy in a way that seems believable. But then you find out she absolutely believed everything she was saying. So she's a very truthful person. So when she tells Colo that she doesn't want him to be part of their party anymore, which he started, it's her ascendance to uh, a place of of actual leadership and and being able to uh, guide other cats. But it's also, like I say, casting him down to you are actually not worthy of, of this station that you afford yourself. Teenage anger is one thing, but a teenager in a mature fashion just being disappointed in you. Mm. Yeah. What you're describing is a little bit Leah sort of instinctively getting Colo that Mm. without even intending to, she's kind of playing his conscience. Mm. So the fact that she's disappointed in him is a reflection of that a part of him is disappointed in himself for what happened and that's why when she says you're a good cat you are a good cat that Mm. he allows himself to believe it because he wants to believe it and she gives a voice to that speaking of consciences and uh, entities that traditionally live on your shoulder crunchy the reptile I was just about to mention him. <laughs> who is who is with us in this recording? Crunchy. Yeah! <laughs> uh, Crunchy, it's very good to have you. Uh, like, do you need any throat lozenges or are you all right? <laughs> <laughs> so, you Crunchy. <laughs> we have the subtitles up. Okay. Oh, wait, this is an audible thing. <laughs> okay. 
Um, okay, for this one, uh, Crunchy the Reptile will be dubbed by... I, I was trying to come up with a funny name, but the only thing... I James Earl Jones. James Earl Jones. This is a disturbing occurrence. Oh Alex, my God. I... I need Crunchy with James Earl Jones' voice now. <laughs> <laughs> and... I would love it if we get James Earl Jones to play a character in New Century, and we we don't put, use it for Mr. White or anything like that. It's like, no, Crunchy the Raptor, that's where his talents will be best served. You know, that but, guy over there, he's a dickhead. Crunchy <laughs> says you're a dickhead. Yeah, I, I, I heard. <laughs> All right. I mean, uh, alternately, I could just... I'm already tapping James for the uh, season six opener. We could have Crunchy... James Earl voice- Jones is doing our season wow. opener. <laughs> no, not James Earl this Jones. This is the Princess Thieves. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, if I wanted to, I might be able to, like, spend a couple hundred dollars on Cameo and get him to voice whatever I wanted. But <laughs> Oh, let's, let's have a whip round. We got for that. <laughs> okay. Getting back on topic, so Crunchy is a lovable little monster that comes across like a combination of Pascal from Tangled and Pinkie Pie's tiny pet alligator Gummy, and then he's finished off with an impish D. Bradley Baker-esque gremlin voice. What was the initial line of reasoning for his inclusion as essentially Leah's familiar? Oh, that was Welker. That was Welker doing... Oh, uh, we got Welker here. The, we're getting Welker. The that that's that's Welker. We got a little off topic there, but the answer that got lost in the shuffle is that Crunchy was meant to be something else borrowed from the Philip Pullman Dark Materials books, meant to symbolize Lyra Balakwa's relationship to her other half, her demon. I was like, right, right. right. Oh, it's yeah. Lyra Balakwa, but she actually isn't lying, and not in a boring uh, BBC way, but in a, uh, it's a surprise that she's not lying. But the, it means that she's always got a friend there. That that rather than feeling like she's alone and she needs to be protected all the time, her and a friend just seem to me to be like, you know, I look after. Christ. It's Abu from Aladdin, mm. so she's a Disney princess. Hence the Pascal connection. Yeah. But she's also a thief, a worthless street rat like Aladdin. I enjoyed the... Camaraderie? What's the word when something's mirroring something else in media? Oh, uh, parallels. Parallel, right. I used that word earlier today. Hmm. I like the parallel of familiar for Crunchy just Hmm. because Crunchy is connected to Leah in such a strong way that like their friendship is unbreakable. Mm. That means that Leah is the strong, independent, confident princess, and Crunchy is her rapscallion tendencies mm. <laughs> to just skitter across the floor and steal your purse. Yet Crunchy gets a bead with his beady eyes on Colo immediately. Crunchy doesn't trust Colo even when Leah does. Colo. And that messes Colo up because he's like mm. the, the gator, he's always watching. <laughs> the gator with the empty eyes. So his his guilt kind of uh, starts to generate into that ball in his his chest. So when Leah again throws him down, it's uh, it's it's already been happening for a while. That's mm. why he gets so irritated with this little shit lizard. And that's why he refuses to recognize the lizard 
as represented by him misnaming him yeah. multiple times because yeah. it's like uh, the lizard doesn't matter if I keep deliberately misnaming him because as long as I don't acknowledge him, then what he's seeing doesn't exist. Mm. This uh, I was doing like when if if a guy's getting together with a girl and then wants to kind of be a little bit disparaging to her ex-boyfriend he'll constantly get the ex-boyfriend's name wrong and then when corrected go whatever to illustrate i don't care about this guy but it's actually kind of a, a neurotic move so wait a second if leah is the lancer to colo does that make crunchy the lancer to leah yes does it <laughs> Does a bit, no, yeah. Crunchy backs uh, Leah up all the time. Crunchy's uh, more than just Chewbacca, who was uh, uh, Han Solo's conscience, because Leah is Princess Leah. She's the one who <laughs> actually is a straight oh, God shooter damn it. and <laughs> does care about justice and does care about people, and especially little people getting hurt. So Crunchy is a little thing she can protect to illustrate like, that she believes these these words she says like the little droid in the obi-wan kenobi yeah. series yeah okay yeah. so Leia, i can't believe to, okay, i was just... waiting for someone to catch it I, and it, I we got so... all the way to the end of the audio drama and no one did so i'm like right so, i'll just so... roll this one out on the <laughs> during the uh white scarves i'm so right. happy to do that Okay, we we've officially failed, Greg. I mean, mm -mm. it's actually it's actually no, no, uh, that you haven't failed. You've just <laughs> illustrated that there's so much in my books. You just miss stuff, and you'll catch it later. Exactly, but it's so appropriate because it reflects Leah's nature as this pickpocket at the beginning. Because we're so distracted by the deliberate, obvious reference that the name is meant to have. It's like, oh yeah, Lyra Blackwell. Mm -hmm. I get it. That you miss. A little reference that's slipping into your pocket and you like check later and you go my wallet's gone and i've just realized that it was princess leia fuck but <laughs> she also uh she she does hold true to lyra balacqua what's still one of my favorite literary characters who cannot stand to see somebody getting hurt if especially if they're small and being hurt by someone or something big well that now makes me ask i mean i've got a couple different angles i wanted to inquire about this but as Alex said, because Leah was written with Will in mind, I'm curious, Will, what did you bring to the experience of voicing Leah? I know the character of Lyra Balacqua, and I know that you're probably drawing on a few other sources as well in order to give Leah her soul, but I'm curious what wellsprings you were drawing from in order to bring Leah to life. Something that Dad's always noticed about me whenever we're watching something that could be upsetting because it's unfair to people or there's some sense of injustice there, mm -hmm. because I react very strongly to injustice, even mm -hmm. if it's natural or I'm very aware of it already, there's still something that like sickens me about it and... Mm -hmm. That could be a very visceral reaction. That could be a deep set emotional reaction. But I know what's right and I know what's wrong. And when I see what's wrong, I get very angry about it. Mm. And I tried to include that as best I could whenever Leah got frustrated because this is wrong. Why is this happening? This shouldn't be happening. Why are people doing this? Mm. 
it also comes across when she when you state Leah's code, it just it comes from a place of truth because you believe all the words she was saying there. And effectively, I was inspired to write that based on your outlook on life. A lot of the so sounds... it's, uh, it's round and round the way that uh, Maureen helped so much to craft Rao, who was interestingly enough it, the, the way I wrote uh, Tiger's Eye was what if the golden compass, but from Yorick's point of view. For those that are not familiar, Yorick is one of Lyra's friends and allies from the His Dark Materials series, himself a member of the Panzerbjorn, which are a race of sentient talking bears. As is obvious by now, the Pullman influences are everywhere in New Century. What it sounds like, this almost physical revulsion to anything that is unjust or just so categorically obviously not right categorically okay um moving on i have to practice so much physical restraint not to make this entire thing devolve into puns it's against my nature anyway (laughs) what it reminds me of having recently rewatched knives out is that feeling that the main character Mm. in that has of just having this physical revulsion to telling lies Oh, shit. Dear girl, I'm sorry. I assumed you were speaking figuratively. That aspect of Marta's character in Knives Out is a fantastic way of getting her won over with the audience. Mm. Who are like, okay, so I've seen a model of this going on. I now see how truthful you are. And so when you say you care about something or someone, I trust that too. So I don't have to second guess this character in a mystery. I know Mm. I have a fixed point here. So I suppose in a book full of characters who have done bad things, Leah is the most virtuous, and even she, when she goes into the blue flame, is riven with incredibly painful guilt. As you were saying, it helps win you over in spite of the things that, at that point in Knives Out's story, and I will not spoil it, just in case any of our listeners haven't seen it, In spite of the things that the film is telling you that this character is seemingly responsible for, you are still very forgiving and all your empathy and sympathy is with them. And that works with Leah as well, because you've had them be the obstacle to progress. You've had them steal the MacGuffin out from out under our hero's grasp. And yet, once you know that code, it feels as if whatever circumstances are there with whether or not this is a tapestry of lies that they're weaving or this is the absolute truth the ethos comes from a place of sincerity and that means that whatever else is going to happen in this that you can trust that leah believes in what she believes in Something I completely forgot to mention was Leah's overwhelm factor. And Mm. I'm positive Mm -hmm. that was based off of my overwhelm factors. You think? She tends to react in similar ways to me from similar roots of what overwhelm might be caused by. Anything that's like physical exertion, if I'm too hot... I get really stressed. If everything feels clammy, I get stressed. The most obvious one was when Leah's in the swamp and everything feels crowded. Like, there's lots of space, but because it's so hot, everything feels dizzy. And 
I tend to react in the same ways that Leah does. And I've tried many different ways to help myself and usually just going off to one side and actually feeling more isolated helps me out. She is holding her head in her paws and gently rocking herself. You're asking me to remember too much, too quick. I feel like my head is boiling when people do that. And at the moment, it might actually be boiling. She scampers down off the sun dragon and rushes to the edge of the great grey, green, greasy swamp, all set about with fever trees. If I get stressed, I lose my breath, I get more high-pitched, I get frustrated, I start crying. And it's not really something I can control, um, because of course I'm not sure if Rama has anything that represents autism or ADHD. Um, I'd say it's fairly certain that there's a lot of neurodivergent cats out there and many have already been featured. Mm. There is a clash there as well that Colo's very confrontational about arguments. Like, So he, when Leah's just trying to get some space and walk on ahead, he keeps yelling at her and Crunchy. And so she turns around and blasts him. Meanwhile, Beatrix was giving her her space because funnily enough beatrix actually has quite a lot of virtues even though she considers herself to be absolutely reprehensible as a cat leah is still in a quiet muttering intense state she is starting to scare me maybe she is genuinely crazy i've suspected for a while that these stories she told us were at best a fabrication at worst a delusion a fantasy she has convinced herself is real it certainly beats being a worthless thief in a city that, for all its grandeur, history and prospects, does not care if you live or die. Scrunchy the Shit Lizard glares at me from Leah's shoulder yet again, as though trying to work out what dreadful wrong I perpetrated on him in the past. What I demand of him is better not be because I punched your gargantuan uncle to death there just now, because you were going to be the appetizer. You know what? Leah turns and shouts. You're a mean, angry asshole. Leave my god's damn friend alone. She swivels and continues walking. This hurts. It shouldn't. Yeah, what do I care what some little punk thinks of me? I call at her back. You prefer the company of something I'd eat on a stick, char-grilled with spices, and you just carry on considering the guy who brought you all the way here an asshole. You are being a... Back off! I was going to say... Well, don't! The fact that Colo is a tank and Leah is a hit and back away, hit a and back away. Because whenever she's goading at Colo, she hits him with a compliment, she hits him with an insult, <laughs> she hits him with a snide <laughs> remark. Ooh, you can't hit me, but... but, but. <laughs> but... <laughs> All right, set the timer. We got to the Undertale reference. Uh, nice. Did we? What did I? What? <laughs> oh, uh, hit you with a compliment. Like you select a compliment on the, uh... in the combat. Menu. Sorry. <laughs> Nicely I... caught. I did. Even Willow missed that one. <laughs> <laughs> That would have conveyed it easier. Whenever Colo and Leah get into a battle of wits, mm. battle music starts playing. <laughs> this is one of the more uncomfortable questions. Oh, I, I'm trying to handle this very carefully. You've heard now 
may have a chance to dive deep a little bit on Theo's experience of being non-binary and how there was something that I was completely unaware of until I don't remember the circumstances in which Theo talked about that for the first time. Since the release of the book, but prior to the release of the audio drama, Will, you came out as gender fluid. And obviously, New Century has included a lot of talk regarding trans people playing either trans roles or cis roles. And I'm curious how this realization about yourself might have informed on Leah. It sounds a lot like the character as written already included a lot of aspects personal to you. So it might not have made a difference, but what's your take on that? It's not exactly an uncomfortable question for me because I don't feel uncomfortable playing Leah. It's um, my outlook on how I present myself isn't I am this one day and if anyone refers to me as anything else but this, I get very upset. I see myself as the perfect example of a wizard channeling (laughs) their different... (laughs) forms forms like my in own. different worlds nice. and thinking i am this one day i am this another and i feel what i am everywhere and all the time everything everywhere at once so you uh, can choose to channel the gender elements that are appropriate for the circumstance and character that you're in if wow someone... charlie's even more appropriate <laughs> for those wondering who charlie is All I can say is, do yourself a favor and read Back in Time plus Space. If someone refers to me as something that I am not at that point, that's not harmful to me because Mm. that's just, oh, that was me last week, or oh, that was me two days ago. And I feel comfortable being able to add more characters to myself because that means that I can add more definitions of who I am, what I want to be, what I want to feel. It's focusing a bunch of different parts of my brain that want to clash almost and kind of putting them in categories and I give them different names and I give them different presentations of how I want to dress, how I want to act. Leah isn't difficult for me because since I am um, assigned female at birth that's not difficult for me to act as female because Mm. that just means that I'm channeling a feminine part of myself that I want to be at that point because sometimes I might want to be masculine so Timmy or Adam that's Mm. both of whom are dead yeah (laughs) we'll get to that Mm. (laughs) but The gender fluidity part of it is probably as fluid as it can get. I see the gender non-binary as I am either, I feel no correlation to any gender, I feel correlation to any gender, or I feel a correlation to neither gender. And it just feels nice to be able to dig into my roots and see what I want to be and then process that I will need to be this at some point because that's not who I am at that point. That's just who I'm playing as. So in in some ways, it's just as you laid out, 
playing Leah is just focusing more on one facet of yourself, and that facet happens to be more feminine presenting. Yeah, exactly. Very well done. Thank you. Uh, speaking of the uh, the overwhelm that you felt, that was really ex the the trigger exploded when Leah was attacked by a giant savage version of Crunchy that Colo then killed. Leah had never met an actual reptor of that size, a fully grown one, and eventually mm. Crunchy will grow to that size. And the fact that Colo killed him and so swiftly was like three traumas at once. And it just broke this cup. Hmm. What point of the story did that come at? It was just before meeting the uh, the, the cats of Iberius when Leah's anxiety okay. over whether she was just imagining this was at okay. its peak. So at that point, what you're saying is not only has the idea of Leah's connection to Crunchy been severed, but it mm. comes after Maximus has died, mm. and after Beatrix's trustworthiness has been questioned, mm. and Colo is being Colo, mm. so one by one, systematically, each of her present connections are being either eradicated entirely, greatly challenged, or there's a sort of future time limit that's been mm. put in place, which will echo forward to the point at the end of the book when mm. this connection which is solidified and all the doubt has almost been cleared away now gets a timer put on it so yeah i i can understand why that is a point of absolute disintegration for mm. stability for leah Fuck. Yeah. she never let on how much she really really liked doing that cicerone light shining uh map room mm. thing the being with part of this kind of prototypical family where she felt like she was trusted and needed and had you know was able to put, put some input in there and that everyone was all firing on all cylinders and working off each other even if beatrix was eye rolling and and kind of digging her heels in which is hard for a cat the heels are halfway up the foot um cynical aunt yeah but mm. she really liked that so that made the damage to the family and then the pulling it back together at the very very end feel like it was snatching a win from the jaws of defeat it's like going to a dnd session and you enjoy it so much and mm. then some stuff happens like some tragedy happens that means that someone can no longer come back and everyone's just mm the versions of themselves that they once were is no longer so easily reached. Mm. Or just that most audiences completely ignore the movie and then there's no sequels. Uh, <laughs> Sorry. Willow okay. has an extra thing. I just thought of this now, but since Leah is getting so overwhelmed in the swamp, it's a moment where she doubts herself the most, and that's something Colo rarely does. So she's having difficulty focusing herself when this big, angry bastard behind her is yelling at her and making her doubt herself more. Because mm. if she doubts herself, she worries about the entire life behind her that she might have to change completely if Iberius just doesn't exist. But the Cicerone and being that useful immediately 
is something that she can separate from being a princess. She doesn't need to be a princess to be a good puzzle solver. So she resonates with that the most. Mm. I also don't think that I realized just how... I knew that Leah had been disappointed after all of the events leading up to Iberius. But at first I was confused as to why Leah responded to Mog the way she did. I I thought that she was going to, at first, going to pull the same thing with Mog that she did with Colo. And when she didn't, I was like, oh, okay, Leah knows exactly what's going on here. And she's just telling Mog what they want to hear. But understanding how fragile she was, and after the whole conversation I had with Theo and Maya about this, it occurs to me just how easily Mog was able to play on Leah's trust issues and the doubts about everything that Hmm. had seeped into her by that point. When Leah loses Maximus, that hits her harder than, than she can put into words. I don't think she even really talks about him. It hurts too much. Mm. Uh, she is overwhelmed at that point by how seemingly unbeatable the lions are. Uh, and the fact that Cola wasn't able to prevent that and the fact that they were effectively turned out into the desert to die, but it was a defeat. It was not a, a victorious escape. And then she gets back home and the lions are there and they have control, she's starting to lose all hope and starting to feel a genuine, overwhelming terror, not just fear, but terror, that this is 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 inevitable. And then one thing comes along that does what even Colo couldn't and destroys the lions, at least in close proximity. And Morg, while horrific, and seemingly not to be trusted, seems like the only thing that could potentially stand against this golden tide. So for a while, Leah places what remaining faith she can salvage in this creature. Mm. And with talking to Star Dancer, it becomes abundantly (laughs) clear that Leah's not going to fall for all of Morg's bullshit because... Leah asks questions all the time and wants to know the answers to to better understand the thing and to better Mm. get to know the cats involved. That was a tough one because it was like, come on, Leah, surely you can't be buying this bollocks. Mm -hmm. But I did also uh, illustrate in in part of the uh, section that whatever (laughs) Morg does to make herself adorable was working to a degree on Leah. And I do mean not like adorable, like uh, star eyes, but like the entire jungle went black and white. And then there's this fuchsia goddess that Leah felt drawn to, to keep gravitating around. Not adorable, something to adore. Mm. Uh, Or inspiring. So some of the biggest emotional peaks of this story towards the end come from your performance as Leah. Well, the defiant eruptive battle against Morg with the Cloudbreaker after enduring Mm -hmm. the horror of hearing the flames' effect on Leah beforehand, as well as the moments she appears to break when she finds out about Colo's remaining lifespan. You carried much of the emotional weight of these key story moments. But it's not the first time that that's happened. Twice before, you've played child characters whose tragic death at a young age stops us in our tracks. 
This includes Adam and Steamheart, Timothy Wolverton and Let Them Go. So I guess my questions are, Alex, what the hell? And <laughs> Willow, what were the challenges of embodying these performances and pulling off these pivotal moments with such sincerity? I think the easiest one would be being able to cry on command. Um, <laughs> That's impressive. I, I still have difficulty with it. If you give me like two minutes, I could probably think of something that could make me cry. But dad usually put on something very emotional that would tug at my empathetic. Can you remember what it was that I, I got to you with? I think um, the first one was that one music video of the dog in space that never came back. Space Doggerty by Jonathan Coulton. You know what one always works for me is Leaves on the Vine. Oh, God. Mm. I'll store that one for later. (gasps) For me, the two songs that can get me to crying every single time are Shake It Out by Florence and the Machine and... Starlight Brigade by TWRP. And because I'm an idiot, I just played a bit from both to double check. <sighs> Come on, Greg, uh, just a bit further to go. So I know I that uh, when I needed to get Willow into exactly the right mood for just being angry at Cola that he had seemingly accepted his fate at the very end, the you know, fine, go ahead and die bit, it was, of all things, Terminator 2. I have to go away. No, don't do it. Please, don't go. I must go away, John. No! No, wait. Wait, you don't have to do this. Sorry. No, don't do it. Don't go. It has to end here. I order you not to go. I order you not to go. I order you not to go. And We Hate Movies have repeatedly said that they hate uh, Eddie Furlong's performance and he's a little snot, but that always got to me, especially at the end. I order you not to go! And I Mm. played that for Will all the way up to the thumbs up and it just got Will to exactly the right place for that particular moment. Uh, But I didn't let her watch the bit afterwards that just soothes that. Yeah, No soothing feelings here. Mm. (laughs) Also, I think I started finding... The end of the genocide run on Undertale for like, that would just make me angry. <laughs> I started finding like when Sans finally gets the the, the final blows and uh, and Sans is destroyed and she, uh, I think Willow was like no 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 it was too <laughs> much it off. yeah it was too much because Will cares a lot about Sans. The first time I saw that clip ever. Uh, I'd seen like little snippets of people congratulating themselves over murder and mass murder, <laughs> mass murder. And the first time I did, I looked it up and I was like, okay, just rip it off, band aid, whatever. And I cried for a solid 20 minutes afterwards. God. You know which part of it got me and I had to stop? Papyrus. Oh, uh... <laughs> How could oh, anyone? I still believe in you. Uh, this is the crying podast now Sorry, why did we so do this focus but yeah uh will, will cares about things intensely so it didn't take too much to just find a true place of sorrow and loss of all of us who performed in this i'd say most of us would agree that will kind of like blew us all out of the water in terms of 
the experience they've had in performing before, this being their first major role. Mm. And child actors can't access this kind of stuff. They don't. If you look at most kids in movies, they don't know what's going on. Like they're, If it's a horror, especially an older horror, where the directors were like, I just don't want this kid to even really know what they're reacting to. Like but- Stan Kubrick, who's normally really cruel to everyone, was like quite gentle with the kid who played Anthony in... Um, Danny. Danny, sorry, mm. in uh, in The Shining, Anthony mm. says, "Sorry, Mrs. Torrance, imaginary friend." So he was awful with the adult actors. Oh yeah, and patted the child actor on the head. But the the child actor in The Shining is oblivious yeah. as a result; like he doesn't know what's going on. And at, at that age, it's, it's really it would be really cruel to heap that stuff on yeah. a kid. And you know, frankly without the proper level of care for you going through that, it would have been irresponsible of me to ladle all of that upon your shoulders. But because we talked it through the whole way, it felt like uh, not dissimilar to uh, uh, the the level of care I, I paid attention to with having to let go of Annie with Loretta mm-hmm. together. There wasn't too much cruelty in, like, finding videos to make me cry because half of it, while um, you were looking for the videos, I just thought of something that broke my heart and I was halfway there, so you kind of just pushed me off the edge. There wasn't scarring difficulty with finding really emotional things that took me out of my court because there's always, there is a thin barrier between me and a breakdown. (laughs) (laughs) Oh. <laughs> I was about to say, you brought up two characters. You didn't bring up Joanna Gray from the Secret Rooms remaster. Mm, because that was with crying. Oh, yeah. God, yeah, I forgot that. Because I was like, well, Joanna Gray's fine. They didn't end up... To... Oh, no! They were crying, and they got brought out of that by someone, and then they watched that person die. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, I I think the first character you actually recorded was Lavinia for the Princess Thieves, and then we went back and did the Joe stuff for the definitive edition of Secret Rooms. Oh, and the kid with the doll in the Princess Thieves. Lavinia. (laughs) Mum. Oh, that's Lavinia. (laughs) Sorry. Wake up! Sorry. No, no, no. I was thinking of the... the, Oh, yeah, no. No, you're absolutely right. Sorry, I need to wake up. Yes. Imogen, you Imogen, rap scallion. Thank you. Imogen, there you should have said the scrotum face shit. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Good luck See, I can't raising that your one. Character that way. Only you are allowed to yeah, describe I your think, character that way. I think uh, there's one thing that even little kids understand, and that's a, a horrible, obnoxious kid. And that's something that little kids could probably act as without being actors at all. Yeah. Like the Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory, you immediately get the, yeah. I don't, uh, you know what? I'm not going to ch- attempt to sing. Sing, a, Toby, sing. Well, A, it's off key, and B, I got the lyrics wrong, but I so, uh, don't care how I want it now. That's the one, yeah. yeah I want a feast. I want the world. I want the whole world. I want to lock it all up in my pocket. It's my bar of chocolates. Give it to me now. Daddy, Hi. buy me a squiddle. Daddy, <laughs> buy me North Korea. <laughs> <laughs> That's going to be difficult for a number of reasons. <laughs> <laughs> it, it has been like a slow kind of build up to this because I figured at some point in Willow's teens, I'm going to need to get a 
big performance out of them. I want to coordinate this so that it's not coming slap bang in the middle of their exams for something. Because mm-hmm. adding, oh yeah, you, I know you got all these plates you're spinning all at once. Can I just add to this for my fun little project? <laughs> So we segues uh, into this is your exams. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> this is my work experience right here. And I did also pay Willow a fair, maybe even slightly more generous than normal wage to exert themselves like this. And... You paid me so much, I actually ended up in debt to you. <laughs> well, yeah. Mm. <laughs> Yeah, I was like, oh, yeah, I've just paid you for a scene we already recorded, but it was so long ago I forgot. So you just owe me 35 quid. Oh. Don't take it running, I know where you live. It's like but 35 I, chocolate bars. But I was always like, you know, waiting to until you actually felt up to it rather than dragging you down when you did not feel in the mood that would be another reason why leah always seems absolutely ready for it because it was always on days that will was good to go this is something that i always make a habit on on all of these interviews so if it sounds repetitive suck it up it needs to be said everyone on these shows always does such an excellent job with their performances it brings these stories that greg and i already have our hearts committed to not just to life it like I'm struggling with the words. It helps us to further cement them into our soul. So thank you to everyone involved in it. And that absolutely includes you, Willow. You did a brilliant job with Leah. So thank you very much for your performance. Thank you. Mm. That does mean a lot. (laughs) Well, I mean, it, it, it just whets our appetite for more down the line, obviously, because, you know, if playing Leah is meant to be a starting place because like I, I haven't I haven't gone back to the book and done a, a count for count but Will you're going to be narrating a whole bunch of back mm-hmm. in time plus space are you I just hope that you're you're up for it because I mean as <clears throat> Greg yes I think it would be irresponsible if we cause an anxiety attack. In the <laughs> no, 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 it's fine. Whisker <laughs> away from breakdown. <laughs> I don't think there's anything that can really prepare me for narrating half a book. Yeah. But in an American accent as well. Uh, <laughs> I do get told I have a very American British accent though, mm. so I should be fine. But I suppose actually it's okay if it oscillates between the two. For reasons. For reasons. Reasons. <laughs> you know, just reasons. Also, also, if a little bit of Britishness works its way in there, it's probably because of. <laughs> but. Uh, uh, That's subtle made... there. <laughs> yeah, all that stuff. But because of. Can you just this... make. <laughs> <laughs> Don't worry, I've. I am um, so sorry I keep throwing us off. Go, go, go. Next. Want to know what we were talking about behind the sensor beeps? Once more, you'll have to read Back in Time Plus Space, where Willow plays and there's a time travel story with and and we find out what happened to and there's a surprise return of and most importantly, you'll finally understand why this story makes for a good end to Phase 2. Next time on Through the Wind Door, we're going to switch it up and go beyond the Wind Door. I'm going to post part one of me, Toby, and Alejandro Vargas 
discussing my experience with 10 horror movies assigned to me at the end of 2021. We're going to finish off with another Panther Soul blooper reel, and then one of the tracks I would add to a Panther Soul soundtrack if I had input into that. Until next time, we'll see you around the multiverse. It was a mistake to drink tea before doing this. The tannins have dried my mouth out. Senate Nog. Senate Nog. Okay, we've hit the silly portion of the evening. Senate nods as Mog lays a kiss upon her painted. F- Senate Nog. <laughs> Senate Nogs. Nogs. Huh. Mm. I find myself arcing around in Fred. In Fred. In Fred. In Frederator. An old white bearded lynx is calling from the tower door as Mog clears the swath. Swathe? Swath? An old white bearded lynx is calling from the tower. <laughs> okay. An old white bearded lynx is calling from the tower. An old white bearded lynx is calling from the tower door as Mog clears the swath of Mog. Oh my god. Mog heads. Exceeds? Exceeds. Okay. Mog exceeds. Okay. The scent of Colo wast. Wast? Wast? Okay. Cool. Welcome back, one take the O. Was this just an excuse for you to tell me? I smile. Ow! There would be so many, I say. The world is f- The world is fully okay. And for my next trick, I shall trip over my own tongue. Enunciate a little more. Tip of the tongue, teeth and the lips. <laughs> say that Say that as a speech exercise. Inexplicably, she sat upon the balcony, welcoming him and hiccuping. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Sorry, the only way I can imagine you saying that is if Sherlock's saying it, and it's too funny. I slit the sheet, the sheet I slit, and on the slitted sheet I sit. Okay. Right. 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 I used to have these rules back when I was running a thieves guild in Bastarian. <laughs> By the way, Grandpa, that's adorable. Watch as a fire rages, our hearts